Well, man, it is good to be with you. I am so tired. Jerry and Ken about killed me today. Last time I go out with Jerry or Ken, ever. <laughs> Jerry took me out fishing today and I'd show him up, the pro. So, and we fished and then I went with Ken and he tried to kill me at the gym and it was just a great day all the way around. It's good to be with you. Open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation. Glad you're here uh, with us this evening. And, of course, there are uh, several of you that uh, have not been here this week. And I'm glad to have you here. And those of you who have been here, uh, again, we're going to be looking consistently, uh, like we have been looking this week, out of Revelation chapter 1. And if you brought your Bibles, and I trust you did, I want you to mark a couple of passages that I want to look at. One is going to be an Old Testament passage. It's rather lengthy, but it's important. It's Isaiah chapter 52. Okay, did you get that? Isaiah chapter 52. And actually, if you just want to mark 53, because it's the end of that chapter. And I'm going to have you turning to a couple of New Testament passages that we're going to look at in reference to our study tonight that are really important. And again, those of you who are the little ones, I'm really glad you're here. Now, you're going to pay attention tonight, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I need you to be a good influence on the guys over in the front row, because they're the most difficult to get to pay attention, okay? All right. Just kidding about that paying attention kind of thing. It's just a little icebreaker kind of thing, just trying to fit in and be cool, be accepted, that kind of deal. All right, praise the Lord. Revelation chapter 1. Of course, what we're looking at tonight is what we've been looking at all week. Uh, we've been focusing in on Jesus because we know that focusing in on Jesus, we're focusing in on who we've been called to be. Uh, I, don't make a distingu- I don't make a distinction in terms of uh, Jesus and myself. Are you with me? When we talk about Jesus, what we're talking about is the life that we've been called to live. There's kind of a misconception or uh, maybe a confusion sometimes uh, in Christianity uh, when we talk about Jesus and then we talk about us. See, we're never supposed to talk about Jesus. You have Jesus and then you have us. See, Jesus was the first of many. If you want to know the life that we've been called to live, you want to know the life that you've been called to live, you look at Jesus. He was the first of many. So he was not Superman. He was not super Christian. He was ordinary, average, everyday Christian. He was the first one. And he tells his disciples, the things that I've been doing are the things that you're going to be doing. See, the same resource that I live by is the same resource you live by. See, the same things that are going on in me are the same things that are going on in you. And and especially if you read the Gospel of John, Jesus tells uh, his disciples in chapter 14, he says, listen, uh, you know, greater things than these are you going to do when I leave and you receive the same Holy Spirit that I have. See, as the Father moves through me, I am going to move through you. So as we've been looking in the book of Revelation, we've been finding that uh, hey, this is uh, especially true for these seven churches and, of course, true for us. Now, we've been looking at, and I've probably recovered enough, so I won't, or, um, uh, you know, uh, not recovered, but uh, reviewed enough. I have recovered, but I've reviewed enough that we probably don't have to go through it again. So, of course, the first three verses are the prologue. It's a focus on Jesus. We've entered into verse 4, which is the beginning of the introduction, and we've been looking at verse 4 and 5. Tonight, we want to look at verse 5, which is Jesus, and this is how he is described. It says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
And what we've been looking at with Jesus, we've been looking at his person, who he is. We know him as Jesus, but in his person, he is the faithful, he is the witness, he is the firstborn, and he is the ruler of the dead. Okay? He is the, he's the ruler, excuse me, ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who he is in his person. And tonight, uh, we want to look at specifically that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, uh, when we look at the firstborn from the dead phrase, the first thing we want to look at is the word firstborn. Okay? Firstborn is a compound Greek word. It's made up of the Greek words that we translate first and born. First is an easy word to understand, and any teenager who's in sports uh, understands this, this, uh, this word. Um, when you're in a race, what position do you want to finish in? First. Okay? That's literally what it means in the Greek. It literally means the first in a series of ranking. So it's like first place or first in line. Okay, that's the word first. Born means, what do you think it might mean? Born means, uh, is a description of birth. So as I was born, okay, as our little pet chihuahua was born, it's not just a human thing, it's going to be an animal thing, uh, born describes the process or, or the, uh, the result of birth. Now when you take these two words and you stick them together, first and born, you're talking about the first in ranking that was born. Firstborn, really important. There are two ways this word is used in our New Testament. It's used in a general way, and then it's used in a theological, or you might even say a specific religious way. Okay? In a general way, to say that the firstborn would be used to describe me. I am the firstborn in my family. And to say that I'm the firstborn in my family means that I am not the youngest, but the oldest. oldest. <laughs> if I could just get the adults to be like that, that'd be it. <laughs> I am the firstborn. Okay, I have two younger sisters, and I'm the oldest, so I am the firstborn. That's how that word is used in the New Testament. It's the first in a series of ranking that comes into birth. Not just, uh, of course, humans, but animals as well. Firstborn. General way that word is used in the New Testament. Now, firstborn is also used in a theological way, okay, or a religious way. And you can talk a ton about this, but the way we're looking at this word tonight is how it appears in our sentence and it's associated with Jesus. This is such a great setting. It's associated with Jesus. And when it's associated with Jesus, it's, it's understood, firstborn, to say that Jesus is the firstborn, it's understood in four different ways. In other words, Jesus is the firstborn in four specific ways. And they're really, really important. And it's not talking about the firstborn meaning that he was the oldest in his family. That's true, but that's the general way. Jesus was the firstborn in a very specific way. It's talked about four ways in our New Testament. Okay? And I want to walk through some of these with you. It's really important we get a hold of this. The first way that Jesus is the firstborn uh, is mentioned as an example of that first way is in, back in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles available, I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 8. And we want to begin, look, begin looking down around verse 28. Okay? Now, again, Jesus is the firstborn, not general firstborn, his specific theological significance. Jesus was the firstborn significantly in four unique ways. The firstborn in four unique ways. The first way, an example of that first way, is in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. I'm reading out of the NIV. This is how it reads. And it's actually in verse 29, but 
We just got to include 28 so it don't feel left out. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, it's a big word, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Now when we say, hey, that God is predestined, and he's talking about a group, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, it means he's predestined this group to look like, be like, act like, what's going on inside of his Son is to go on inside of this group. Okay? And of course, you and I are that group if you're a Christian. Okay? Conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn... And then the phrase is, among many brothers. So the first kind of firstborn that Jesus is, is the firstborn among many brothers. Okay? He is the first that's born, that's come, in, that's come about, or that's come into existence. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And again, what that means is, is that you have a whole group of people, and they're also called sons, uh, or, and when we say sons, we also mean sons and daughters. There's a whole other group of people that are to look just like Jesus. This is so, this is so significant. Again, I'm, conf- I'm constantly confronted with, I'm constantly confronted with people who, who think it's okay, and it's difficult to talk about this, but they think it's okay that like, Jesus lived here, and I don't live there, but that's okay. Well, that's not okay. See, Jesus demonstrated the kind of life that you and I are to live. The things that were going on in him are supposed to go on inside of me. The things that he was into, I'm supposed to be into. The longings he had are the longings that I'm to have. See, the, the ministry that he was a part of, I'm a part of that ministry. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first. He's the first one to look like that. But to say that he's the firstborn naturally means that there's going to be another. In other words, if you came up to me and, and said, Jeremiah, uh, you know, and started asking me questions about my family. And I said, oh, I'm the firstborn. And they said, oh, do you have brothers and sisters? No. I'm just the firstborn. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. To say I'm the first, like if you ran a race. Mom, I came in first place. That is great. How many people ran? Well, just one. one. <laughs> that doesn't work. First suggests that there's more. Okay? So, I mean, hey, if you came in first and you're only one, I mean, at least you didn't come in second. That'd be really bad. <laughs> I was the only one running, but I came in second. That'd be bad, would it be? Shake your heads. That'd be bad. Yes, that's right. So, when we say that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, hear this, adults. We say that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, that means, hey, he's the first of a several group of people that are going to come in line and live as he has lived. Okay? Do as he has done. Experience what he has experienced. He's the first among many brothers. That's the first way that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn in our New Testament. Very significant. Okay? Second way. Our second way is over in the book of Colossians. Okay? That's just a few books down. It's right after Philippians. Right after Philippians. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verse 15, which is right after 14. Hope you find that. And firstborn is used in two ways beginning uh, in this first chapter. In other words, Jesus is, is called the firstborn, but he's the firstborn in two different ways. The first way he's the firstborn, he's the firstborn among many brethren, among a whole group of people, and hey, he's the first of what they're going to look like. Oh, just, oh, it's exciting. What's going on in Jesus is going on in you and I. Okay? Significant. 
The second way is beginning in verse 14. Paul writes this. Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and then it says this, that he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, why would he say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? Well, you, you and I both know that Jesus identified with you and I. This is really significant. Sometimes I think we as Christians think that Jesus, yeah, he came and lived as we lived, you know, and of course, uh, yeah, he had to shower just like we showered and those kind of things. But to say that Jesus really identified with us completely, it's hard for people to believe that, when in actuality he did. Jesus suffered just like you and I suffered. Uh, I, I believe Jesus had uh, allergies. Don't you just love this time of year in Texas? You know, you wake up in the morning, you got headaches. I, I bet Jesus had that kind of thing. Because we know Jesus, although he never sinned, he was born in a fallen body. He aged. He probably got gray hairs. Okay? Unlike your parents who dyed their hair. Jesus was, hey, he had gray hairs. I mean, literally. He got wrinkles. Would you believe that, right? He aged. And so naturally, with the process of aging, which I haven't experienced yet, but naturally, with the, pro the, the, you know, the, the process of aging is you get sore. Okay? You get tired. I mean, the, the things that you used to do, you can't do anymore. Listen to me, guys. Jesus experienced that. He experienced that. So Jesus is, hey, he has come and identified with creation, but Jesus is, the, as Paul says, he's over creation. And what, what Paul means by that is he's over the creation because Jesus, even though he identified with creation, Jesus is eternal. In fact, at the beginning of the book of John, which we're going to look at tonight, Jesus, uh, uh, John writes about Jesus, says that he was before the foundation of the world. And Paul says stuff like, everything was created in him and for him. So even though Jesus is identified with you and I, Jesus is eternal. Okay? He's the firstborn overall creation. And if that confuses you, no pressure. We're not looking at this one tonight. Now, you go down a few more verses, and I want to look with you uh, at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And Jesus is called the firstborn again. Now, you would say, you might say, well, he's already talked about firstborn. Why would he talk about firstborn again? Well, it's a different kind of firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. Okay? He's the first of a whole group that's going to look just like him, act just like him, be just like him. But he's not just that. He's not just the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn over all of creation. All creation was made by him and for him. In him all things exist. This is Jesus. Okay? Second kind of firstborn. The third firstborn is mentioned in verse 18, and Paul says he is the head of the body, the church. Here it is. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This is so neat. When he says, when, when he says that Jesus, when he says Jesus is the beginning, beginning is not a time kind of word. Like uh, the beginning of the service, oh yeah, 7 o'clock or 7.03 if you were really, really paying attention. Uh, that's not that kind of beginning. It's not a time thing. That word beginning is the same word that's used back in the book of Genesis and in John chapter 1 when, when, when the authors write, in the beginning. Not a time thing. It literally has to do with origin. Okay, It's an origin kind of word. So we're talking about beginning to say that Jesus, listen to me, to say that Jesus is the beginning, what we're saying is, Jesus is the first. He's the origin. Okay, he's the beginning. He's the beginning of something brand new. 
the firstborn is something brand new. There's something that's going to take place, and Jesus is the very first one of that that's going to take place. That's what Paul says. Jesus is the beginning. Now, he doesn't only say beginning. He attaches that to what we're looking at, firstborn. He says he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Okay? As Jesus identified with you and I, and you and I are going to experience death, whether that's naturally, hey, disease, Mack truck, whatever, okay, sooner or later, unless Christ comes back, we are going to experience death. J Jesus identified with us in that he experienced death. Okay? He experienced death. And Paul says he's the first one from among the dead. Now, you guys like Greek? Great. Okay, good. This will be helpful then. The Greek word, should have been paying attention. Okay, the Greek word for, uh, among there is the Greek word ek. That's all right. I'll help you along. Just try to stay with me. Okay. Among is the Greek word ek. Okay, the Greek word ek. And you might just thought that was just like an ek. Well, that's actually a Greek word. So if you've ever said that, you know Greek. Okay. It's the Greek word ek, and ek means out of. In other words, when you pulled up here, if you pulled up in a van or a car or what have you, you got out of the car, you ecked the car. <laughs> okay? Out of. That's what that word means. So, now hear me. So when it says Jesus is the first out of, or from among, is, is a good translation, Jesus is he's the first from among the dead, as Jesus experienced death, and as you and I are going to experience death, Jesus is the first one to come out of the dead as a brand new thing. He's the first one. He's the first one that's from among the dead. Of all those who are going to die, Jesus is the first one to come out as a Christian. The very first one. In fact, he made a way for you and I to come out. That's what Paul says, first among the dead. Now, those are three specific ways that Jesus is the first, referred to as the firstborn in our New Testament. Okay? He's the first among many brothers. He's the first over creation. And he's the first among the dead. The fourth way, this is good, the fourth way this word is used in our New Testament is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And it says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, you may say, hold on. I thought we just covered that first from the dead kind of thing. Well, kind of. And I'm just going to be frank with you. Most experts, scholars, people who teach at colleges, write, people who write a lot of books, um, intelligent types, they say that first, uh, or that Colossians chapter one verse eighteen, saying that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, that that meaning is the same meaning here, but it's not, because here when it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, from is not ek. Now this is going to take a little focus. You guys can get this. You'll have to ask me questions later. Okay, you're going to get this. You can get this. You sure? You didn't get the ek thing. Okay, I'll trust you. I'll trust you. Okay, so stay with me. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Say so that Jesus is the firstborn, stay with me, firstborn from the dead. From is not ek. From is a genitive. Now, do you remember what the genitive does? See, genitives, we'll go over it again just for fun. Genitives show possession of another noun. For instance, it, it, it narrows down a word. It, it defines a word. It restricts a word. In other words, and some of the illustrations that I've used, that if I come up to you and I say, hey, my name's Jeremiah, and I worship the sun, you might look at me and say, whoa, man, that's odd. You worship the sun. 
I knew, I knew something was odd about Jeremiah. And a genitive would come along and say, Jeremiah, they think that when you say, I worship the sun, that they think that you're talking about that big fireball in the sky. And of course, I'm not. Who am I talking about when I say I worship the sun? <laughs> Jesus, there you go. See, when I say that I worship the sun, I'm talking about Jesus. So, a genitive would come along and it would say, Jeremiah, you need to add to that word son of God, which restricts the kind of son that you're talking about. Remember that? The other example was, if I come up to you and say, I'm washed in the blood. You would say, yuck, that's disgusting. So a genitive would come along and say, you need to restrict, you need to describe what kind of blood you're talking about. And so a genitive would come along and say, of Christ. That I'm washed in the blood of Christ, or the blood of the Lamb. So a genitive shows ownership of what, whatever it is. So when it says, of Christ, the blood is the blood that belongs to Christ. Does that make sense? Now, in our passage, it's got to make sense. In our passage, <laughs> it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn belongs to the dead. Dead shows ownership of the firstborn. And that's different than the one in, first Col uh, in Colossians. See, in Colossians, Paul says Jesus is the first from among the dead or out of the dead. But that doesn't show ownership. For instance, if... Um, you have a water tank. We just went to an aquarium this week. This, is, this, is, this will be good. If you have a water tank and you come and pluck stuff out of a water tank, and let's say there's a lot of different things in the water tank. Let's say there's fish in the water tank. And let's say that there is uh, mammals in the water tank. And fish and mammals are different. Let's say that there's human beings in the water tank. As you pluck everything out of the water tank, hey, it all came out of the water tank, but just because it came out of the water tank, does that mean it's the same thing? No. So when it says Jesus is the first from among the dead, that doesn't suggest familiarity. That doesn't suggest likeness. This does. Because this is not from out of or from among. Jesus is the first of the dead. He's the firstborn of this dead. In other words, he's just like, see, if I die and you die, we're both dead. And we identify. We have a linkage in that deadness. This group will struggle. This group should get it. With me on this? Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, in meaning that Jesus is the death, and he's the firstborn from that dead. He's, it's familiarity. Now, what does that mean? To say that Jesus died and that he's the firstborn of those people that are dead. Hey, he's one of those dead people. He's the firstborn from that. What does that mean, to say Jesus is the first from the dead? When, when you go and you, you look throughout the New Testament and how people approach this, and I went to commentaries and such and, and, and referenced people who were smarter than I, they all say that what, what, what John is talking about is that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that physical death is what's being talked about. As Jesus died physically, he's the first of the dead physically. That's what he's talking about. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Jesus obviously is the firstborn of that group who, uh, you know, has experienced death physical death. He's the first of that group, obviously. But when you get in the book of Revelation, remember what I said to you the first night, is that the book of Revelation is about the plan of God. This is fantastic. It's everything that God set out to accomplish. The book of Revelation says, I accomplished it. So this is the plan. This is the consummation of the plan. This is the, hey, this is where it all comes together. God accomplishes everything he set out. But you understand that the plan of God, hear me on this, the plan of God was not to save you from physical death. That's not the plan of God. 
In fact, when you come into the book of Revelation, and I really, I really struggle with this, death is not only permissible in the book of Revelation, physical death is a part of a plan in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles open, I want to flip through just a couple of passages with you. Okay. Yes, Jesus was physically raised from the dead, but see, the, the redemptive plan of God was not a salvation from physical death. Hey, it's, it's a salvation of spiritual death, but it's, it's not physical death. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Look with me in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 down through verse 11. And we read this already this week, so you're a little bit familiar with this. The church of Smyrna is undergoing horrible persecution. And Jesus says to this group uh, down in verse 10, he says, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the truth, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you uh, will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So hey, he tells this group here, you're going to experience physical death. So the emphasis is not physical death. That's, that's Revelation chapter 2. It gets stronger. If you go down to verse 13, which is the next church, and we looked at this guy as well, Antipas, I mean, Jesus calls him his faithful witness, and yet Jesus allowed, God allowed Antipas to experience death. See, I hear this all the time. If God was good, he wouldn't allow people to die. Well, I believe that's your perspective of death. What if death wasn't all that bad? From God's perspective. And what the big deal, and you might say, well, death's a big deal. And yes, listen to me, kids. Yeah, death is a big deal. But I'm telling you, there's a bigger deal than death. Okay, and it's called sin. And that's a bigger deal, and that's an eternal deal, and death is a physical thing. Hey, death's not forever. And if you're a Christian, death's not a big deal at all. Okay, there's a bigger deal than physical death. And God did not come to save us from physical death. Okay? And it's, it's over and over. We looked at two examples in chapter 2. I want to give you a couple more that are really striking, because I like to strike you. Look with me in chapter 6. This is a couple of the really aggressive ones. In chapter 6, <laughs> go down, listen to this, go down to verse uh, 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, uh, Then I heard, well, no, go back a little bit for that. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the, living, uh, the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil or the wine. What they're saying there is, hey, bad times are coming. In, in short, verse 7. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. Listen to this. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. In fact, hey, Death and Hades were given power. And so literally, death is a part of God's plan, the unfolding of God's plan. And in fact, when you go into verse 9, it says, when, the, when he opened, Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, and they called out in a loud voice, hey, God, when are you going to you know, avenge us? 
come on, stick up for us kind of language. Sovereign Lord, holy and true uh, is what they say. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Listen to what he says. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So in fact, God says, listen, there's going to be more to die. What's the picture I'm trying to paint for you? In the book of Revelation, the big deal, hear me on this, the big deal is not physical death. Hey, the plan of God is not to save us from physical death. We are all going to experience physical death. So when you go back into Revelation chapter 1, and it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, I do not believe that the plan of salvation, the emphasis of, of the spiritual content of Jesus, is not a physical death. It's not an emphasis on the physical death. That's not the plan of God. It's spiritual death. And this will be difficult for some of us to put this together, but I want you to stretch. I want you to try this. Try this on for size. See, to say that Jesus was the firstborn from spiritual death, that's pretty radical. Hey, a lot of the church has no problem with saying Jesus is the firstborn from physical death, that he suffered physical death. But was Jesus, hey, was he the firstborn from spiritual death? We know that he identified with us in physical death, but did Jesus identify with us in spiritual death? I don't believe Jesus faked it on the cross physically. In other words, I think Jesus died physically. I don't think he was just faking this out on the cross going, oh, man, that hurts. <laughs> and, you know, for three days in the tomb, he hung out, talked on the cell phone, and, uh, you know, hey, endured that thing, and he tricked us. I, I, don't, I think he physically died. I also don't think that he faked this out on the cross when he said, Father... Hey, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, Paul says in several places, as do the New Testament author, uh, uh, authors allude to, that Jesus took on the sin of the world. So on the cross, Jesus took on, think about this, Jesus took on the sin of the world and he paid the price for your and my sin. And he was, as uh, the book of Acts says, he was buried in the, uh, he was buried among the iniquit, uh, among those iniquitors? That's not the right word. He was born among the sinners and though the vile, the outcast, the wretched. He was labeled among them. He was nailed on a tree, which says, hey, anybody who's nailed on a tree is cursed by God. So Jesus literally experienced spiritual death. In fact, Paul says that he went down to hell and set captives free. And he experienced the punishment for our sin. Now, I really struggled with that, and so I want you to go back with me, if you would be willing, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. And this is a really lengthy passage. It's a really lengthy passage, but I want to read this to you, and you're going to have to stick with me. I'll read it slow, and we're going to pause. But see, it's one thing to say that Jesus... The, see, if I were to say the, the redemptive plan for your life... Listen to me, kids. If I were to say the redemptive plan of God for your life was physical stuff, in other words, uh, yeah, hey, God was going to raise you from the dead, and you would go and be with him. Hey, physical stuff, it just doesn't seem like that's what God is concerned with in my life. In fact, Jesus says stuff like the leaders of, to, to the leaders of Israel. He says stuff like, hey, if you lust after a person in their heart, it's the same as doing it. 
So it's not just physical stuff, it's mental stuff. And he also says that if I hate you, that is the same as... Anybody know? Starts with an M, ends with an erder. Murder. So hating you is the same as murder. Which means the emphasis is not the physical deed, it is the... It's the spiritual reality, man. So what God is interested in redeeming you is not just a physical thing, it is, an, it is a person, spiritual kind of thing. Now, this is what Isaiah talks about. Listen to this. At the end of chapter 52, you have this, in, in IV at least, you have the description of, the suffering, of the, uh, the suffering and glory of the servant. This is referring to Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy is what it's called. It's referring to Jesus. Verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's, by the way, uh, in the New Testament, that's taken to mean the cross. He's lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now you understand when it says he was raised and highly lifted up, hey, that's why they're talking about the cross, because it fits in the passage. His appearance was disfigured. Hey, he was marred. It was a horrible sight. Verse 15, So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who's the they? That's us. <laughs> hey, that's us. Gentiles, us, was what I mean. Like the Romans. Verse 1 of chapter 53. He says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It describes Jesus as a young kid. He says he grew up uh, before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. In other words, Jesus was probably not good looking. Really. And he didn't get a date for prom, apparently, for the, the, this passage. Yeah, that's stretching it. Okay. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was esteemed not. Verse 4. Surely, here it is, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We, yet we considered him stricken by God. So we see all that Jesus was suffering on the cross, and we thought it's him, but it's, the reason he was suffering was because he took up our infirmities. He took up our sicknesses. He took up all the sin and literally brought it into himself and he in his body was paying that penalty. That's what he says. Okay? Verse 5 of chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Praise the Lord. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned away. To, uh, turn to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Now hear that. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
get this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was God's will for that to happen to Jesus because in him he paid our, our, our sin. Now, this is the point we were, we're coming to, the end of this verse. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. What does that mean? When you go back into the Old Testament, there were all these offerings that the people of Israel had to offer to God. There were guilt offerings. There were sin offerings. There were fellowship offerings. There were all of these different kinds. I wrote, one, I wrote them all down. Burnt offerings. I just didn't burnt there. There were all these different, and there were more than that. There were all these different offerings, and they were all literal offerings that had to be made. Jesus, in the, in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament, he's often referred to as the Lamb. And he is the fulfillment of all those offerings. Okay? And what would happen in the Old Testament, and there were several different kinds of offerings, but one example is, is that literally once a year, the priest would take this goat, they had a lamb sacrifice too, but it was called the scapegoat. And the, and, the, and the high priest would come to this goat, and he would take his hands and he would put it on the goat's head. And literally, the, sim, the, sim, the symbol was, it was symbolic, and that all the sins of the people would pass on to this goat, as if this, that goat literally did it. And then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness, and it would carry the sin away from the people. Listen to me, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Okay, in other words, all of our sin just in him. And when he died, that went with him, and he paid, as the goat paid the penalty, he paid the penalty. <laughs> now listen, and it wasn't just a physical penalty. Oh, Jesus died physically on the cross for my sins. He didn't just, hey, he didn't suffer physically. Jesus suffered spiritually. And how, can I, how do I know that? Listen to what he says in verse 11. Okay? After the suffering of his soul... This is really important. Adults are going to like this. After the suffering of his soul, Jesus suffered in soul. Do you know what the Hebrew concept of soul is? The Greek concept is that we have a body, we have a spirit, and we have a soul. The Hebrew concept is that we have a body and we have a spirit, and those together is a soul. It is a being. So you have body and spirit, which is why all the time Christianity is not just about physical stuff. And it's not just about spiritual stuff. It's about both. We honor God. It's a physical. In other words, the spiritual and the physical are together. Jesus suffered in his soul. He suffered physical. He suffered spiritual. Soul. That's not my language. It's Bible language. Jesus suffered. He paid a penalty, not just physically. What he suffered on the cross was not just a physical thing. It was a spiritual thing. Hey, after the suffering of his soul, and it, it comes again here in a few minutes, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many, and, and he will bear their iniquities. Okay? Go down uh, to the, just the last statement of chapter 53. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because of what he suffered, Jesus had that. Now, you might ask me, 40 minutes, you might ask me, what does that have to do with me? When we're talking about what it means to be a Christian, and man, we've been hitting this all week, we're not talking about a physical band-aid approach to Christianity. 
that what God wants to do in every single one of our lives, children and adult alike, is not just a surface level physical kind of redemption. It is a spiritual, brand new person kind of stuff. Let me give you an illustration of this. I meet people all the time that are all bent out of shape over physical stuff. Um, all kinds of, and I guess I use the same illustrations all the time, but uh, anger, see? Um, I want God to deliver me from, you know, and they talk about the physical effects of anger. When the big deal is not the physical effects, and you could stop all the physical effects and still have the spiritual thing. Lust, okay? Hey, sexual sin is not physical stuff. Sexual sin is not pornography. Sexual sin is not dirty magazines. Sexual sin is not having uh, a sexual intimacy with another person. Sexual intimacy is objectivity in the eye, through the eyes, objectivity of another person. And you cannot do the physical thing and still, hey, we're not talking about physical stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an inward, deep, spiritual thing in our life. Which tells us all kinds of things about what stuff that goes on in the church. Tithe. Tithe is not a 10% physical giving of money thing. It is an attitude of your heart. Worship is not a singing thing. Worship is an attitude of my And when Jesus came as the firstborn from among the dead, he was the first that experienced that kind of life in terms of not living it, but having it the, the ramifications of that in his life. He literally suffered for that. He paid the consequence of that. He went to prison for that. He roomed with Bubba for that. <laughs> he ate jail food for that. He slept in the mat for that kind of thing. So it wasn't like, well, hey, he just you know, faked it like he did the tomb and hung out in the grave. No. Hey, and, he, and if God can raise that, he can raise you. And if God can redeem that, he can redeem you. Jesus became the worst of that. What are you, what are you consistently living with in your life? What are you consistently living with? And teens, I know this is probably a lot deeper than maybe perhaps you have experienced, and maybe not. But when we're talking about being a Christian, you obviously know that it's more than showing up to a building on Sunday. It's obviously more than just not doing these things and doing these things. And adults, it's way more than just affirming of what we've believed all of our life. It's way more than just saying, oh yeah, I've experienced, you know, I've had the experience. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've done the right thing. I've said, I've believed the right statements. It is literally a full capacity, body, hey, spirit, soul redemption. But the redemption that Jesus offers is an absolute, total capacity redemption. Uh, if you've never experienced that tonight, and I, I don't know, I, I, I think I experienced that when I was saved. I Though I don't think I knew what it was called. <laughs> and yes, I'm saved, and yes, I'm a Christian. And in 1995, I went down to the altar in a, in a service where I didn't even hear what Pastor Goddard had been preaching, but he said he preached a message on entire sanctification and the you know and the call to ministry. And I didn't hear too much of what he said, but God, my heart was beating out of my chest. And I responded to that. But I tell you the truth, I have had crisis points. I believe in two. But I've had crisis points after that where God comes in my life and he says, Jeremiah, I want to utterly transform not just an activity in your life, but a perspective that you have is wrong. I want to redeem that. 
hey, I want to I do something brand new in your life. I want to take you to a new level. I want to offer you victory. Not just so you do different things, that you're a different person. I want to offer you that tonight. Jesus, we love you with all our heart. We thank you for the truth of your word. To say that you identify with me in my weakness and lived on this earth as I have lived, you weren't Superman, you couldn't fly, you couldn't see through walls, you had to foot it from Galilee to Jerusalem just like the disciples did. To say that you experienced physical death, and hopefully, Lord, I'll never have to experience that death, but you experienced physical death and the quenching of life as I will experience it, that was all good. But to literally, to literally, to say that you brought into your very person and suffered the penalty of separation from God, sin, death, and that God raised you out of that gives me hope. It gives me hope that I don't have to be the way that I've always been. And the old-time Nazarenes and... Uh, and probably in my early ministry, I thought I'd never hear myself say these kind of things because it just didn't make sense to me. It sounded like cliches, old Nazarene cliches. But the old Nazarene generation called it full and complete salvation. Not just a physical thing, a full body thing. It is a change of my inner person. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And no one's looking around tonight. If you have never experienced that in your life, what we're talking about tonight is entire sanctification. What we're talking about is an absolute radical changing of your person. Inside stuff. It's will kind of deal. It's a reorient. It is literally a renewing that takes place. Paul talks about that all over the place. And I believe the disciples experience it. You see the evidence of that in the book of Acts. If he's speaking to you tonight... And you need something beyond a, a Band-Aid to stop using curse words. Come on. That's so surface-level stuff. And I'll tell you that the curse words are not the big issue. And when it really comes down to it, that doesn't bother me. It's what's going on behind that and drives that that bothers me. It's not the magazines that bother me. It's the perspective that you have that bothers me. It's not the language you use to your spouse that bothers me. It's your perspective of your spouse that bothers me. It's a person thing. It's not what you do, it's who you are. Because who you are is what you do. And if God is dealing with you tonight on who you are, and you're just up to say, Jesus, hey, I'm tired of being the way that I've always been. I want that in my life tonight. you can respond. And we're just going to seek together. And in a few moments, we're going to close. Jesus, you're so good tonight. I thank you for how good uh, the crowd's been. And um, You know, in my heart, how I was a little nervous when they're going to bust in 30 different people, 40 different people that haven't been here all week and what that does to a service. And sometimes, you know, all of the complications that come. But tonight's been fantastic. And there's just a great group of, of people here. And you're moving and... I've struggled today with how do I communicate to them about how absolutely instrumental they are in your kingdom. Jesus, you don't see skin color. You don't see male, female, I believe. 
You see calling. You see purpose. You see kingdom. And Jesus, you see beyond the physical activities in my life. You see, preaching is not going to get me into heaven. Going to church five days a week is not going to get me... Traveling as an evangelist and living on the road is not going to get me to heaven, Jesus. Giving my money is not going to get me to heaven. Because the redemption that you're talking about is beyond physical things. You want to move in my life until I am an absolutely new creation, different person. You're the firstborn. (laughs) You're the first one. Could I fall in line? Maybe I won't be second, but hey, would you put me in line, Jesus? I want to be brought out of what you were brought out of. I want to be redeemed from what you were redeemed from. Put your bow and eyes are closed. Would you want to respond tonight? And don't do it just because your your kid or your friend's doing it or, or because you think it's a thing to do. But and of course, hey, kids, if Jesus is speaking to you tonight, we love you so much. We love you very much. You're you're very you're very very important to Jesus and to us. And if you want to pray tonight, and, and this is not a time for you to come down and and play with your friends and talk. But if Jesus is talking to you and you wanna you wanna come down and pray and ask Him in your heart, we'll come and pray with you. Okay? If you want to have Jesus in your heart, we want you to do that. And you can just follow the example of the adults and come down and pray to Jesus. And adults, if you want to be the real deal, and you want Him to do something in you that perhaps He's never done before, this is the hour. Let's seek Him, shall we? We love you, Jesus. We want to respond. In your name we pray.